Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, Empowered Living, with a message titled, Meaning and Purpose in Christ. So turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 to 10, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I recently read a series of collected notes from people who were contemplating suicide. One young woman wrote, I will never be happy. I'll never be stable. There is no point. I'm disgusted when I look in the mirror. Another person wrote, there's nothing anymore. I want to be free and alive again. I don't want to wake up every morning thinking that the rest of my life will just be a job and nothing more. Still another person wrote, I'm 40. Nothing has gotten better in decades. You know, it's hard even to contemplate the despair in those words. Nothing has gotten better. And then looking into the future, it's now clear that I will not find joy or purpose and a feeling of any significance there either. Maybe that's you. You've lived long enough to wonder if your existence really amounts to anything at all. I recently was privy to a secondhand conversation. That is, you know, someone came to me and reported an interesting conversation. You know, while living in the global pandemic, the person said, you know, perhaps a few billion of us need to die. After all, there are way too many of us anyway. See, we're living in an age of despair. In the Western world, we've raised an entire generation with the underpinnings of evolutionary biology. Your life, our biology teachers proclaimed, is the result of meaningless and purposeless chance. If there is any meaning, you'll have to invent it for yourself. But as for a grand design, expect to find none. I used to teach a class to Christian students entitled Christianity and Contemporary Thought. We discussed the major worldviews that the Western world had embraced and then abandoned. So we talk about theism and deism, naturalism, nihilism, existentialism, and a host of pantheistic worldviews. And halfway through the class, I would invite a friend to come and make a presentation. Yeah, he was my friend. He's also a grade 12 science teacher, an evolutionary science teacher, as well as an outspoken atheist. His classic line was as follows. If the world were to explode in a nuclear holocaust tomorrow, and all life were to be extinguished, there would be no one to watch, no one to care, and it wouldn't mean a thing. As one university professor was heard to remark in an unguarded moment, I get tired of my job of making nothing seem like it's important to a group of students every day. The book of Ephesians is a book about our resources in Christ, and it begins in one extended sentence from verse 3 to verse 14. Paul begins this letter by exploding in a burst of praise, as if he doesn't even take a breath, but he's overwhelmed with all the resources we have in Christ. Yesterday, we discussed verses 4 through 6, and we learned that the blessings we've received already began before the human race had been created. In his wisdom, God had already chosen his elect and predestined them to be holy and blameless in his sight. We would then say before we were born, there already was not only a blessing, but a purpose for our lives. There is a wise master plan for God's people. Today, we move from the wisdom of God before the world began into the present and then into the future. Let's start in the present, Ephesians 1, 7 to 8. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. I want to start with the first two words, in him. So in whom? 
You know, often when reading Paul's letters, and that's especially true in Ephesians, we have to make a distinction. Is Paul speaking of God the Father, or is he speaking of God the Son? Now, clearly up till now, he's been speaking about the Father. If you go back to verse 4 of chapter 1, notice he says, He chose us in Him. He refers to the Father, and in Him refers to the Son. Go to verse 5. In love, He predestined us. Who is He there? Well, the answer is, it's the Father who predestined us. And so whenever I teach the first verses of Ephesians, I try to get people to put the right person into each reference. So starting from verse 4, we can read, The Father chose us who believe in Jesus before the foundation of the world. And then in verse 5, In love, the Father predestined us. And then later, according to the purpose of the Father's will. But we also notice that at the very end of verse 6, we learn that it was the Father who has blessed us in the Beloved. And there we saw that the Beloved was the Son. So the Father blessed us who believe in the Son. So having just said that, we read in him, and here I think in him is a reference to Jesus the Son. In Jesus the Son, we have redemption through his blood. Now we notice that Paul is moving from what God the Father has done before the foundation of the world to what Jesus the Son does in the fullness of time, and that makes good sense. We know that it was the Father who planned our salvation before the world began. He elected us and determined that he would send the Son into the world. That's the unique role that the Father plays. The Son also plays a unique role. The Son obeys the Father. He's sent by the Father, and in so doing, he accomplishes our redemption on the cross. Now, if you think that the Holy Spirit is not mentioned in this passage, well, you're going to have to wait until we get to verse 13, and there we're going to read about the Spirit's work in sealing us. And we might also say that it was the Holy Spirit who actually draws us to the Son and creates in us a new heart. We'll leave that part to later. But for now, let's go to verse 7. In Him, that is in the Son, that is in Jesus, we have redemption through His blood. That is to say, one of the things that Jesus accomplished for us while he hung on the cross and bled and died is that he gave men and women whom the Father elected unto their redemption. Now, let's take the time to understand that word. See, the word redemption comes from the ancient world of slavery. Of course, as most of us know, there were many slaves at the time of the New Testament. People became slaves for a whole variety of reasons. Some became slaves because they were soldiers and had lost in battle. Still others became slaves because they had accumulated debt and were now unable to pay. An indentured slave served as a slave until the full debt that he owed or she owed would be paid off. And at that point, that person would be allowed to go free. Now, when Paul defines our relationship with sin, he does use the analogy of slavery. So in Romans 6.16, he says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. And so the image of being in sin is being in slavery to sin. You know, a person might say, you know, I'm done with sin, but sin is not done with us. It demands our obedience and even imprisons us against our own will. Paul will say that sin leads to death and then to judgment. So we might be aware of that and even be afraid of the judgment that will come with its ensuing condemnation, but still we continue to sin 
because sin has mastered us. So remember in this passage, Paul is recounting all the spiritual blessings we have in the heavenly realm. The Father, he said, elected us before the foundation of the world. The Son, in the fullness of time, has redeemed us. And redemption is the payment of a price to set a slave free. And in the ancient world, let's say in the case of an indentured slave, a person might pay out a person's debt. Once the debt was paid, the slave went free. What then was the price that was needed to be paid for redemption from slavery to sin? And the answer, says Paul, is the blood of the Son, Jesus. See, I need to stop here and and point out that there are those who believe that the debt was paid to the devil who held us in bondage. But please notice that the Bible never says that. God the Father, nor God the Son, has to pay the devil anything for freedom from sin. God doesn't owe the devil anything. Rather, the death of the Son of God is a payment to satisfy the righteous demands of God. Christ's blood atones for our sin before the judgment seat of the Father. When Jesus died, says Paul, all of those the Father had chosen were set free from sin. The price had been paid, and we were no longer children of wrath and judgment. In him, that is, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. But Paul's not done. He adds the words, the forgiveness of our trespasses. And the word trespass means to intrude on someone's property. Imagine a sign on a fence that says, keep out, trespassers will be prosecuted. So think of God's laws in that fashion. The Ten Commandments tell you, you may not trespass this line trespassers will be prosecuted in God's law court. But through the blood of Jesus, not only were we set free from sin, but we were forgiven our trespasses. There's no longer a case against us. And then notice how Paul expresses this. This came about according to the riches of the Father's grace, a grace that God not only applied to us, but that he applied lavishly. The Father didn't dole out his grace in Jesus in a sparing fashion. Rather, he gave it super abundantly. Every aspect of our salvation was thought out with absolute care. One of our listeners wrote to say, this message captures the heart of our awesome God. Thank you so much for this truth, Pastor John. I love the passion you display in expounding God's Word with truth and humility. Feedback like this lets us know that the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada are hitting the mark. With God's blessing, people of every age and background are being impacted through faithful Bible teaching and engagement using every effective medium at our disposal. Our special thanks to all those who listen, watch, read, and support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. Your encouragement and commitment to Bible teaching is essential. Please continue to stand with us with your prayers and support. You can join us in this effort with your financial gift by calling us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Before we move on to the blessings that await us in the ages to come, I want to go back to the blessings that are found in our redemption and in our forgiveness. Paul mentioned that God the Father lavished these blessings on us according to the riches of the Father's grace. Please notice that Paul didn't say 
out of the riches of his grace. So let me try an illustration. Imagine you're poverty-stricken, and one day you hear that a very wealthy man, a billionaire, is going to help you. He's going to give you something out of his riches. Well, you might well say, well, given how rich he is, I'm sure he can afford it. But if he gave to you out of his riches, well, you'd have no idea if he was going to be generous or stingy. If he gave you a million dollars or one dollar in either case, it would be out of his riches. So that's where the gift would come from, out of his riches. But it wouldn't specify how large or how small the gift would be. I hope you understand that point. But now imagine he were to give you something in accordance with his riches. That would mean that his gift would be a showcase of just how rich he was. The gift would be an accord with his wealth. And that's what Paul's getting at here. God the Father, when he saves his people from their sins, means to use that salvation to showcase just how wealthy he is. Think on that. Now let's move from the blessing that we had in ages before the foundation of the world to the blessings that we have in the current age, that is, in our salvation through Christ, now to the blessings that God the Father is still waiting to give. I'm reading Ephesians 1, 9 to 10. Making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So let's start with those first words. God the Father, in his boundless wisdom, is making known to us the mystery of his will. So we do well to stop and consider the word mystery. Many of us like reading a good mystery. You know, usually those are murder mysteries in which the drama of a book is taken up in the question of, who done it? And if it's a good mystery, we're going to have a hard time figuring it out. But once the writer reveals it to us at the end of the book, if it's a very good mystery, we should be able to go back through the book and it's all going to make sense. So in a way, that's how the word mystery is used in the Bible. A mystery is not something that's complex or impossible to understand. A mystery might be something that's easy to understand. And we don't scratch our heads at the biblical mysteries and say, I just can't figure it out. I guess it's a, you know, a mystery to me. That's not the idea. A mystery is something we would never arrive at using our tools of intellect. It's something that we would never come up with on our own. Unless God reveals it to us, we wouldn't know it. But once God reveals it to us, we can think about it and go back through our Bibles and we can say, oh yeah, it all makes sense now. See, there are a number of mysteries in the Bible. I'm going to give a number of examples of that. Romans 11:25 lest you be wise in your own sight. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. See, that's not hard to understand. There's going to remain a partial hardening of hearts toward Jesus in Israel, and that's going to last until the full number, that is the full amount of God's elected Gentiles have come to Jesus. But while that's easy to understand, it is also true we'd never have known that if God hadn't revealed it. Or try another one. This one's found later in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Yeah, until it was revealed, no one knew that God had intended to create one new humanity made up of Jews and Gentiles in the Messiah. 
So that's the idea of mystery. It's a secret that's known only by God, a secret we would never have guessed until he chooses to reveal it. Okay, let's go back to verse 9 of chapter 1. God the Father has decided to make known the mystery of his will, a mystery that God planned before the world began and which he set forth when Christ was revealed. His plan is that in the fullness of time, that is, in the time to come that God has designated, God the Father is going to unite all things in his Son, Jesus. So stop and consider that. So first of all, that means that God the Father is moving all history towards a goal. That brings me back to the modern problem of meaninglessness. The problem with moderns is, first, they don't know that the universe is God's creation. They imagine an impossible scenario, that somehow something came from nothing. And then that something that now came from nothing had accidental interactions with other things that also came from nothing, and given enough time and enough chance random events, all that exists now came into being. So then from them, what does all that mean? Well, it means nothing. It's merely the product of unintelligent chance and random events. And furthermore, these chance events will eventually unwind and lead to nothingness again so that it won't mean a thing. And when you wonder why people are so purposeless, that's why they're constantly in despair. But in truth, there is a creator. And God, because of his love for his elect, a love shown in the redemption he accomplished through his son, has had a mystery, a secret plan regarding why he made the universe and where it's going. He's moving history to a climax, and now he's chosen to reveal that mystery. He's going to unite all things in Jesus. You know, stop now, because some of us are scratching our heads and wondering what that could possibly mean. I know that some liberal Bible teachers take it to mean universalism. That is, from their vantage point, God the Father will, in the end, after this life is over, and when the new heavens and the new earth arrive, ultimately bring everyone into Jesus. You know, regardless of whether you've worshipped Jesus or not, we're all going to be united. Now, if that's what Paul was trying to communicate here, well, we would have to conclude that Paul, in his writings, is hopelessly and constantly contradicting himself. See, in the very next chapter, he's going to make the argument that outside of Christ, everyone is by nature a child of wrath and subject to damnation. You know, Paul does not think that in the future, Adolf Hitler and the victims he slaughtered are going to join hands in the sky and sing Kumbaya. I guess after that, they'll sing, it never meant a thing. See, clearly this denies Romans 1. The wrath of God is being poured out on the unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth of God and enter into a life of rebellion to his commands. Well, if Paul doesn't mean universalism, what does he mean? Well, in the Greek, the phrase to unite all things can also be translated to sum everything up. See, the only other occurrence of that phrase in our Bible, well, that's found in Romans 13, verse 9, where we read, For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. See, in other words, you can take the second table of the law, that is, commands 5 through 10, and you can sum up those six commands in one sentence, love your neighbor as yourself. It's a powerful summary of what's taught there. Now, using that as our guide, here's what Paul says. In the fullness of time, or when the time comes, when God brings in the new heavens and the new earth, 
And when the time comes to ask the meaning of everything that has occurred, whether things in heaven or things on earth, all of that, everything is going to be summed up in one word, Christ. Jesus Christ is the summation of all things. The reason for the long history of this earth is that Jesus Christ redeems a people to himself, a people who belong to him. And when history is complete, Jesus Christ will be the sum total of all praise and the ultimate meaning of all things. All things in heaven and earth will be summed up under his leadership. Christ will be Lord of all. Paul says it well in Colossians 1, 16 and 17, for by him, that is by Jesus the Son, All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him, that is through Jesus, and for him, that is for Jesus. And he, Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, let's remember that this entire paragraph in Ephesians 1 is to express praise to God for all that he has blessed his people. So why is it such a blessing to know that in the ages to come, when all things are summed up, they will be summed up in Jesus? Well, the answer has to do back in verse 7, where we started. In him, that is in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. A redemption happens, says Paul, in Jesus. We were united to him. And furthermore, back in verse 4, Paul said that we have been made sons and daughters of the Father through Jesus the Son. See, that means we're not left without a purpose. We have meaning. Our lives are leading to the grandest moment possible when Jesus Christ sums up all things. Thanks so much, John. Let me ask you, do you think that the anxiety and disappointment that so many people live through can can be associated with the, the life philosophies that they've chosen to embrace? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. What we, are, what we accept as true determines how we live. And um, so uh, even believers who say, you know, I, I, I believe in Christ, and yet they live with a sense of poverty and don't understand the meaning, the purpose that God has placed into their lives. Um, you know, they, they hear words maybe on Sunday that contradict their worldview, but their worldview remains as it is. And so... Um, A worldview that's not examined in the light of Scripture always leads uh, to bad things. So, yes, we need to believe in order to be transformed. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Empowered Living, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Hi, this is Ben Lowell of Back to the Bible Canada. Do you want to know the answers to some of the most commonly asked questions from our listeners? Well, this month, I'll be privileged to host a special Back to the Bible Canada Q&A video series with Dr. John Newfeld, where he'll respond to some of the most timely and critical questions of faith and life. You can watch this series on Back to the Bible Canada's YouTube channel or online at backtothebible.ca. And to ensure you never miss a new Back to the Bible Canada video program, remember to subscribe to the YouTube channel while you're there. One of our viewers wrote to say, I just subscribed. Thank you for sharing God's word. The greatest calling in life is to present the truth of his word. 
For more information or to support the ministry of Back to the Bible Canada, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.